Beloved, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. If you're visiting us and you do not own a Bible, it is found on page 1047 in the Pew Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that as a gift from us. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Beloved, in this life, we will suffer. There will be troubles, as Jesus said. It is because our world is broken. And it is broken because of sin. If you look to the news you look to your own life, you would know that this is true. Think about this very day, 9-11. It's the 21st anniversary of when terrorists hijacked planes and ran them into the World Trade Center, where thousands died. Not even go back to our own country. Think about our own city in the past week and a half. The abduction and murder of Eliza Fletcher. This past Wednesday, there was an active shooter on a rampage who killed four people. Think about our own lives, compounding that with some of us have lost loved ones very recently. Others of us have loved ones who are suffering from sickness and disease. It's not only adults, but also children. In this life, there will be hurt and hardship. It is so real. In the midst of our hurt, there's a four-letter word that we seek to cling to to help us in the midst of it. That word is hope. We hope for a better day. Oftentimes in our suffering, people try to comfort us with words of hope, saying phrases like, things will get better. Time heals all wounds. A better day is coming. And as sweet as those sayings are, merely saying them doesn't guarantee it. And those who say them have no power in and of themselves to produce the hope they're aiming to convince one of. And that's because hope is not found in man but in God alone. See, when we make promises, we can't guarantee that they will be fulfilled. But when God makes promises, he makes them and he will keep them. He will keep his promises even when it doesn't look like he will. Scripture describes God as a God of hope. And this God has promised That life as we now know it, that is filled with brokenness, hurt, death, he has promised that it will not remain. He has promised not to make things better, but to make all things new. And it it is as certain as Jesus' resurrection from the grave. As the Son of God came and took on flesh and died for our sins, redeeming us, Ascending to heaven, he has promised to return, and when he does, he will consummate his kingdom. 
Beloved, it is through the good news of Jesus Christ that God gives us real hope in the midst of real hardship. And we will see that in this morning's passage. So if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Our big idea from this passage is a word of exhortation, and it is this. Comfort one another because Jesus rose and will return. Comfort one another because Jesus rose and will return. And in light of this truth, the passage exhorts us to three actions. First, grieve with hope. Second, anticipate a reunion. And third, encourage one another. We are to grieve with hope. We are to anticipate a reunion. And we are to encourage one another. A little bit of recap. As said previously, we're in the second section of 1 Thessalonians. And here Paul exhorts the congregation towards faithfulness to Christ Jesus. In this morning's passage, he provides new information in light of the hope of Jesus' return. And then he gives his exhortation. We'll see that today. Our first point for us, what we are to do is that we are to be a people who grieve with hope. Timothy returned to Paul. He brought a favorable report concerning their faith and love. Timothy also brought a question that the congregation had for Paul. It was concerning Christ's return and how that would impact Christians who have died. Will they also participate in the glory that is to come? This congregation knew and believed that Jesus will return. They knew the ramifications that that would have on Christians who are alive, but they were perplexed. 
is how it would impact Christians who have died. Paul gives a pastoral response as he shepherds this congregation through teaching. Look at verse 13. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. The congregation was confused, and this confusion brought about anxious thoughts concerning Christians who have died to be with the Lord. And so here, Paul, he gives clarity that the Lord may bring comfort because God is a God of all comfort. He consoles us in our affliction, and one of the primary ways by which he comforts his people is through his word. Look at verse 13 again. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed concerning those who are asleep. Now, being asleep, it is a euphemism, a common euphemism that refers to death. It is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and also it was common in that culture. And as you think about sleep, it is the very image of death. Death. It is an enemy. It was not a part of the goodness of God's creation. In fact, when God created the world, the whole earth, death was nowhere to be found. But where did it come from? Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Due to Adam's rebellion, sin has been imputed to us. Therefore, death comes for us, Christian and non-Christian alike. In the words of Aaron Burr and Hamilton, death doesn't discriminate between the sinner and the saint. Status can't stop it, money can't bribe it, and good health won't prevent it. The average death rate around the world is that every day, 183,670 people, 71 people die. That is between babies and adults. And I'm sure it's even more if you were to account unborn babies. Beloved, in this fallen world, death is normal. And here Paul describes it as sleeping. And it's appropriate to describe it as sleeping because it speaks to the impermanence of death. In the words of the late philosopher and poet Christopher George Wallace, there is life after death. Death is not final because God promised a resurrection. And through Jesus, the promise is secure as the sinless Savior died on the cross for sins. And three days later, resurrected from the grave. Prior to Jesus' resurrection, death was undefeated, but death met its match when Christ walked out from that grave. Paul says, and scriptures affirm, that death is not final. Upon our death, it's not annihilation, but separation. As our spirits depart from our bodies, then we are judged. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
For those of us who are in Christ, when we breathe our last breath here, our very next breath will be in glory with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 says that we would much rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. But we will no longer suffer. Our faith will turn to sight. Instead of suffering, we will bask with great joy in the glorious presence of our King. Whereas those of us who don't know Jesus, they have a different experience. They will depart from this life and they will suffer conscience torment in Sheol as they await the final judgment and experience the wrath of God for their sins because they did not trust in Jesus Christ in this life. How we respond to Jesus in this life has eternal ramifications on what will happen to us in the life to come. Beloved, this makes evangelism so important. So if you know yourself to, be a, to not be a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. If you get anything from this sermon, I want this to be your takeaway. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He will save you by his grace. God is holy and you have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And his judgment is real. And you're in dire need of forgiveness. And he offers it only in Jesus Christ. The son of God became man. He took on flesh. He suffered and died for the sins of all who would trust in him. And three days later, he rose again from the grave. Friends, today can be the day when you are reconciled to God and forgiven of your sins. I would implore you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. For God loves you. And he offers forgiveness. Receive Christ and be saved. If you want to talk more, you can talk with any of our members after service. For we love to talk about the gospel. And the Thessalonians, they lost church members as they have gone to be with the Lord. Now, we don't know how they died, whether it's persecution or sickness or old age. But they passed away. And they were grieving. And like ourselves, we who have lost brothers and sisters in the faith, we grieve as well. And here the Apostle Paul is not concerned as much about grieving. He's concerned about how we grieve. Specifically concerning those in Christ who have died. Look at verse 13. Once again, he says, concerning those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest. Beloved, grief is a real emotion. As we suffer the loss of those who have died, it produces sorrow in those who are left. We grieve. It's saddening. It breaks our hearts. And here Paul is not encouraging one to suppress those emotions. In fact, he's encouraging the very opposite. He gives permission to cry. He's not scolding a single church member for tears flowing. Even for us, it's good for us to know this because we grieve 
over loss. We've cried over murder, gun violence, and injustice. It's important for us to know, beloved, that in our hurts, God is not cold towards us. He doesn't give us the cold shoulder. He is compassionate. My wife is teaching our children about the Lord being compassionate, and they're telling, she's telling them that God sees, God cares, and God wants to help. And oftentimes in our hurt, we think that Jesus doesn't get it, but beloved, he gets it way more than what we think, far more than what we assume. The Bible says that he is a man of sorrows and was acquainted with grief. In his earthly ministry, when his friend Lazarus passed away, Scripture says that Jesus wept. Death really does produce grief in the lives of those who are living. Let me address the children in our gathering. Children, I know that many of you have experienced loss of some kind whether it's family, friend, or a friend of the family. And it hurts, you cry, you mourn. And in the midst of your hurt, I want to encourage you to do at least two things. One, talk with your parents. Let them in on the hurt that you are feeling, that they may be there with you. Secondly, talk with God. The Bible says that we should cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. In the midst of our tears, just like how a parent wipes away the tears of their children, well, God will do that one day for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Children and adults. Paul is concerned by how we grieve, specifically over the loss of Christians. He wants us to grieve with hope. What is hope? It is, in confident, it is a confident expectation of the future. It is rooted in revelation, where God has made promises and he will fulfill them. It is only Christians who have hope. And here Paul makes that clear. He says, don't grieve like those who have no hope. Non-Christians don't have hope. They didn't have it then and they don't have it now. Whether they're religious, worshiping some sort of false religion or unreligious, they don't have a real hope. The things that they're hoping to happen will not happen. The things that they're expecting won't come to pass. Their hope is vain because it is either in themselves or in some sort of idol. They have rejected the God of hope. And apart from repentance and faith in Jesus on that final day, they will be put to shame. But Paul makes known that Christians, we do have hope, and it is rooted in revelation. As God, when sin entered the world, God promised to reverse the curse, 
And he brought it to pass through Jesus' coming, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and he will one day return. He has promised that on that final day, he will resurrect and redeem the bodies of his people. He will bring about retributive justice against the wicked, and he will renew the earth to where we will eternally dwell with our God. Beloved, it will happen. So as Christians, as we suffer and experience loss, as those who we love, who know the Lord, they die, we can grieve and mourn with hope. Beloved, one of the things I love about hope is that in it, you acknowledge the difficulties of life. And simultaneously, you're confident that things will not remain as they are. We are saddened by pain and death, and yet we are not despairing. Our hearts are heavy, they are hurting, and simultaneously they are happy. Not in our situation, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as we grieve with hope, we say that this is hard, but God is faithful. And he is no less faithful to me today than he has always been. And how do we know? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the empty tomb are proof. It is as we grieve with hope, we say this hurts, but God loves me. He is for me and is with me. The cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb are proof. In our hurt, we say that this is perplexing, and yet we know that God is good. The cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb are the proof. It is as we grieve with hope, we say that this hurts tremendously, but it will not last. The cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb are proof. Beloved, this is one of the great paradoxes in the Bible that we can have real grief and simultaneously be glad at the very same time. That we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And as perplexing as that is to non-Christians, it is possible because of Jesus. We grieve with hope over Christians who have died because we know that they are with the Lord. Paul goes on to ground this hope in the gospel of Christ and our union with Jesus. Look at verse 14. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Beloved, this is a summary of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the Christian's confession of faith, and it's all about Jesus. As the Son of God became man, he is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He has died as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. And he rose bodily. And by God's grace and through his love, he has saved us, we who have trusted in Jesus. He has united us to Christ. And because we are united to Jesus, when Christ returns, he will not come alone. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is good news of comfort for the Thessalonians and for us. 
that Christians who have died, they are not forgotten by God. They are with the Lord and they will one day return with him. Beloved, this reality, it doesn't prevent grieving. It is not the magic bullet to stop tears from flowing. But it does cause us to grieve with hope. And as we grieve with hope, we are be a people who anticipate a reunion. This brings us to our next point. We are to anticipate a reunion. Look with me at verse 15. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. And some of you who have read this may think, man, that is a very interesting phrase. Because he's an apostle, isn't he always speaking on behalf of the Lord? So why this wording? Many commentators believe that though these words are not found in the gospel, the Lord actually said these words. Just like Acts chapter 20, verse 35 Paul quotes Jesus in saying that it is better to give than to receive. Look again what the Lord says. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. From this verse, Paul emphatically affirms the reality that Jesus will return. That he is the Lord, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. The one who came, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Paul is declaring that he will return. In fact, this is one of the themes of the book in, uh, this is one of the themes in the book of First Th Thessalonians. It is at the conclusion of every single chapter in this book. Chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Chapter 2, verse 19. For, our, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Chapter 3, verse 13. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. We see it here in this passage. In chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the main takeaways from 1 Thessalonians is that Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning. Paul continues to beat that drum, seeking to get it into the hearts and minds of the Thessalonians and in our hearts and minds that Jesus is returning. Beloved, all the biblical authors in the New Testament declare that Jesus is returning. It is the very part of redemptive history that we are awaiting. And beloved, the Thessalonians hoped in this, as Paul commented on in chapter 1, verse 3. He recalled their hope, their endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus. The Thessalonians hoped in this. The question for us is, are we hoping in this. Because, beloved, 
It is hoping in Jesus' return. It is this hope that would keep us sane in a chaotic world. It is this hope that protects us from despair as we watch and read the news. In the midst of our hurt, it is this hope alone that causes us to stand when our world comes crashing down. I want to be clear. Beloved, this hope doesn't make our pain of loss less painful, but it does make it more bearable because we know that it will not last forever. Paul's reminding the congregation of this truth, that he begins to share what's going to happen. And in, the first, in verse 15, he gives two categories for Christians, of Christians, those who are living and those who are dead. And at Christ's return, he declares that the living will not be prioritized over those who have died. Peep the sequence. Look at verse 16. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Pastor John Piper says that this is the loudest verse in the Bible, that Jesus will return, and his return will not be private or in secret, but it will be public. As the Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father, he will get off that throne and come back to earth. The one who is being ignored now will not be ignored then. Scripture says that every eye will see him. People of every continent will take notice of him. Beloved, his triumphal coming will be both seen and heard. Here in Memphis, here at this very moment, there are many things that we can't see. We can't see what's going on in Arkansas, yet alone what's going on in California. We certainly can't even hear sirens that are happening in Arkansas. But what Paul says, that on that day when Jesus returns, he says there will be a loud shout a command that people around the globe will hear it. As the Lord will descend from heaven, everyone will hear it. What goes on? He goes on to say there would be the archangel's voice. Now this may or may not refer to Michael, the archangel. He goes on to say, and there will be the trumpet of God. Now, trumpets are used to declare a victory or to make an announcement. We see them in the Old Testament with both Numbers and Joshua. In our scripture reading, we read about the trumpet being sound in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. Now, some may be wondering whether all of this will happen simultaneously or all of this is sequential. I'm going to let you guys debate all of that. But one thing all three have in common is that a sound will be made. And let me encourage you to not get so bogged down into the details that you will miss what it's actually saying. Saying that the Lord will return. The Lord will come down. 
a sound will go out, and the dead in Christ will come up. Every last one of them. This command will be so powerful that it will waken the dead. Tombs that contain those who are in Christ, they will no longer contain them. Urns will burst as God puts bodies back together. The dead in Christ who are at the bottom of the ocean and the sea, God will raise their bodies. Beloved, regardless of the circumstances of how a Christian died, God will glorify their body. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And through union with Christ, just as Jesus rose from the grave, we too will one day rise. And beloved, that is not all. Look at verse 17. It says, then we who are still alive at the Lord's coming, we who are still alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Paul's saying that Christians who are living when the Lord returns, our bodies will be transformed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we all will, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. Philippians chapter 3 verse 21 says, the Lord will come and transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. Those of us who are here, when Christ return, we will have glorified bodies. Now, many people speculate on what does that look like? I don't know. But there are two things I know for sure. One, we won't lose our beautiful ethnic identities. Whether you're black, white, Asian, Mexican, Hispanic, regardless of your ethnicity, you will not lose it when you are glorified. And second, what deserts and aging has done to our bodies will be completely done away with. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I'll be able to enjoy some of DJ Skip's desserts without fear of the consequences. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Everybody know DJ can make some desserts. In verse 17, Paul makes known that there will be a glorious reunion. And we who are in Christ, we will reunite with brothers and sisters in the Lord who have gone before us. We have gone to be with the Lord. There will be an amazing reunion. Now, beloved, one of the things you need to know about me is that I love a good family reunion. I really do, especially a black family reunion. Y'all, them mugs be live. I'm so serious. I mean, like, man, them mugs, you see all your relatives, them must be dope. You have really good food, mostly unhealthy. You know, it's at the family reunion that you throw out your diet. You throw that mug right out the door. It's kind of like Thanksgiving and Christmas. At these family reunions, man, you have really good old school music, party, man, the whole nine. Y'all, them mugs are so live. And the older I get, the more precious they are. 
because I know that they're not promised. At family reunions, you celebrate the family that you see and you mourn those that you've lost. And in that mourning, there is a a yearning, a desire for a reunion to see them again, to spend time with the ones whom you loved. Beloved, those desires that we have for our biological family, God promises to bring about for the family of faith. For those of us who are in Christ, when they depart, there will be a day by God's grace when there will be a reunion. And what's so amazing is that as good as that is, the reunion is not the culmination, for it gets better. Look at verse 17. He says, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, when we talk about the sky, whether this is a literal sky or a spiritual realm, I don't know. But one of the things that is very clear is that we will be with the Lord. The one who loved us and gave himself up for us. The one who we have trusted in, who we see with eyes of faith on that day, we will see with sight. The one who we love in response to his love for us. We will see him and dwell with him and never apart again. And as the Lord comes, he will continue to descend. His angels will go forth and he will destroy his enemies. He will renew the earth and we will dwell eternity with the Lord and the new heavens and the new earth. Beloved, what this is saying is that there is a day when suffering will give way to glory. Where sin and all of its effects will be brought to an end. Where injustice will cease. Killings will end. Cancer will vanish. Disasters will stop. It's on that day when the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It is on that day where death will be destroyed. We'll reunite and forever be enamored by God's grace, basking with great joy in his glory. Beloved, is this what you're anticipating? Is this your greatest longing? It should be ours. And what's so amazing is that this is not wishful thinking. I'm not selling you a dream. I'm describing to you a reality that is rooted in revelation. This is not me promising it. It is God who has promised it and declared it and made it known in his word. And it is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. It is this sure hope that we are to place our hope in. And because our hope is in this, because Jesus has risen, because Jesus will return as he has promised, we can anticipate a glorious reunion. These truths also inform what we are to do today which is to encourage one another. Look at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Paul has given clarity for the sake of comfort. He had this intention in mind that the church, the Thessalonians and us will move closer together, that we will be present in one another's lives, that we will have compassion upon each other in the midst of our suffering, that we would reflect the tenderness of Jesus, of whom Scripture says he will not break a bruised reed and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Here Paul exhorts us to not leave us in our hurt, but to be with each other and to encourage one another. Oftentimes in people's hurts, we don't know what to say or what to do, so oftentimes we do and say nothing. And beloved, truth be told, that hurts even more. When a member hurts, may we do the one thing that Job's friends got right. May we sit with them in their hurt. Come to them and invite them to our homes. Beloved, do not devalue the ministry of presence. It ministers far more than what we think. And the Lord uses it to do far more than what we imagine. And for those of us who don't know what to say, here the Apostle Paul gives us his script and he gave us permission to plagiarize. He says, encourage one another with these words. So after we sit, after we listen, after we weep, we are to share God's word. One or two passages to encourage the faith of the saints. And one or two passages because our goal is not to fix them. We're in it for the long haul. We share God's word because it is a balm for the soul. God's promises, the resurrection of Jesus, his imminent return, it is medicine for the heart. And the goal of our encouragement is not so that you will get over it, but so that you will get through it. Let me say that again. The goal of encouragement is not so that you will get over it, but so that you will get through it. May that be our hope. May that be our aim as we give encouragements to our brothers and sisters who are suffering. Beloved, Paul is encouraging us, exhorting us to have this type of compassion that we go and be with each other. Scripture commands us to be a people who weep with those who weep. Like the church in Atlanta, Cornerstone Church, they're saying may be true of our church that we want to be a church where tears flow freely, but the floors stay dry. Because there's always a shoulder for one to cry on. May we be a people who empathize with one another. And after we empathize, encourage one another. 
As we encourage one another, God in his wisdom and power uses his word to strengthen us in our weakness and to aid our endurance. As God the Father, he is a father of mercy and the God of all comfort. And he uses us as his agents of comfort as we sit with one another and share God's word with each other. Beloved, there's real grief that comes from loss. It has lasting effects. Members who have lost people, they don't just move on. So as a church, may we not either. Beloved, they will remember their loss. So may we never forget. May we save the dates in our phones, set annual reminders, and on that day, may we call each other, pray with one another, and be there together to encourage our brothers and sisters who are hurting. And we do this because we are a family of faith. We have the responsibility to encourage one another. Paul is exhorting the congregation to encourage one another in the Lord in these ways. And we can encourage one another because we know that our king is coming again. Let me read to you what it will be like on that final day. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Beloved, we are one day closer to that being our eternal reality. Our king is coming soon. May we wait with hope. Let's pray.